0: Good to have your company. I'm Dr. Barry Harker and you're listening to Life Learnings, conversations with Christians about their lives and ministries. My guest today is Philip Groom. Philip worked as a scientist for the New Zealand government for more than 40 years. He has worked in such diverse areas as coal research, thermal testing, pesticides, blood alcohol and forensics. He has now retired in Australia. In the first part of the program, I'll be talking with Philip about his life in science. After the break, I'll talk with Philip about his early life and experiences. Welcome, Philip. Good to have you today.
1: Good morning. very. It's good to be here, Barry.
0: Philip, why did you choose science as a career?
1: I was always attracted to science. Um, As I grew up, I I thought bacteriology would be a good one, but um, I was... Uh, led into science by my educational opportunities as they offered. My mother realised my potential early and um saw as she was um doing technical photography work in the early days with um an old method of printing out. Uh she was in her own way quite a, a scientist. Um Then during Year 7 or 8 at a thing called Intermediate School, we had a a science class once a week with Mrs. Jordan uh, with real chemistry, although it was only done by her. One of the most memorable tests she did was uh, making oxygen out of um, permanganate and um, manganese dioxide heated up and proving the coming off uh, oxygen, oxygen generation, by putting a glowing splint into the uh, gas formed and, pooh, she burned like anything, you know. I was very impressed by a small thing like that. Then at high school, I um, I topped my class in uh, science subjects. I did miss the ducks of high school to Ian Axford, but he was a worthy competitor because he went on to in ASA and became a space mathematician, <laughs> but I did find university a real challenge.
0: Where did you study?
1: Uh, I had to go to university in Wellington, Victoria University, the capital city of New Zealand. Um, we had no family there, so i um, I had to find board and I did that very successfully or mother did it for us and uh, my main subject uh, at university was chemistry with mathematics and physics and geology and German reading knowledge, and I already had some French uh, from high school, so uh, I was quite well set up there.
0: So how long did it take you?
1: In university? Um mm. uh, About five years. I missed a year. Mm.
0: How did you come to be working for the government in New Zealand?
1: Well, that was a good fortune. As I finished the sixth form with such high marks, uh, I won three possible bursaries or scholarships uh, from which I could choose only one. Uh, That which offered free tuition plus a bond for five years work was really best for me because my dad was on a low wage and had worked hard So the possibility of secure work after training was very desirable and the DSIR, the Department of Scientific and Industrial Research Award, with its work program laid on was great.
0: Tell me about your early work.
1: Well, um, I didn't get holidays in the early times. Uh, I had to work during my holidays for the DSIR, but that was getting experience I actually worked side-by-side side with Sir Ernest Marsden, a uh, famous scientist um, of the type of, you know, uh, Rutherford type people. Um, he was uh, setting up an age-dating lab with carbon-14. Athol Rafter was the um, DSIR man. and um, But my first work during those May holidays... Uh, was helping Huddy uh, Williamson in a road materials lab. I'd never heard of this sort of thing, and no doubt you haven't, <laughs> um, where they chop a piece of uh, new road up and um, send, you, send it in as a sample. And I had to break it all down into asphalt and stones and shingle and bits and pieces and find out if the specifications were being followed. Okay. In those days, the government really looked at the specifications. Um, well, um, I also worked uh, close to the radioactivity lab, and they were making cylinders of carbon. It was a very interesting process, and uh, I was glad I'd been there because the scintillation rates on the samples were of, of real interest to me. And this is a number of um, counts per second, you know and the required lead shielding was very fearsome. They, they shielded all atmospheric uh, effects out. Hmm.
0: How did your career develop?
1: Um, I was assigned to various sectors. One was with um, vegetables, doing checks on them to determine how much spray was left after them. They were written out with standard methods for all these things. The health of people depended on these results. And when my service was not needed there, I was able to go um, along to the glassblowers during free time, and uh, they were repairing broken glassware, and they had massive skill. Um, And I also heard about people talking about interesting forensic cases. Now, I actually got involved in an early forensic case. They called me in to help, and the cargo ship (coughs) Kokiri... Exploded in Wellington as they were going to lift the hatch and it killed someone. Um, I had to find out h- how much methane was being released from that coal, how explosive the coal dust was by actually testing it in small scale explosions. And um, these um, figures were able to aid the coroner and everybody else looking for safety, you see.
0: Was that how you came to be involved in coal research?
1: No. It was quite a separate thing. But when I was graduated, I did get appointed to the coal section, and there was a small team of four people there, one lady and three men, and um, they were doing their job, and my duty was to come in, and and as a specialty, I was doing the calorific value or the heat value of um, coals, and the coals were representative of everything that went in in new zealand anyone that found coal uh, or that was sent in by geological survey came over to us and i had to do the coal the cv value other people did the ash and the constitution of the ash is there a lot of
0: coal in new zealand
1: no it's all over the place yeah you you wouldn't know about it but they've only dug out the main deposits And some deposits down in Otago are um, of poor quality, but there's a lot there.
0: Does New Zealand export coal? No. So it's just for domestic consumption?
1: Yeah. um, I suppose they did export some, but um, the easy export from Australia where things done on a vast scale would Mm. make it much cheaper.
0: What about the thermal testing? How did you get involved in that?
1: Oh Well, um, thermal testing happened in a year that uh, one man, a scientist, wanted to go to Germany and uh, I'd been recently married and um, the uh, thermal testing uh, was all the thermal pools in New Zealand, they had to be analysed and their temperature and roughly the flow rates of them And uh, everyone was uh, very cooperative. They'd let you on your land uh, when you showed your certificate of authority. And so my my boss and I were going around thermal testing uh, from right up north, tip top, right down to, um, to Wellington. Not much in some areas, but a lot in others.
0: How many testing sites would you have looked at?
1: Or 150, perhaps, you know, different little bits.
0: And they would vary from large pools to small...
1: And um, (laughs) we had a a special bore, you know, at at Wairaki. They have a a thermal area which has been systematically bored and the gas coming up, the heat coming up is piped into a thermal station to um, give steam for energy, for electricity, and uh, this was quite a major effort in New Zealand at that time, setting it up. One of the boars went wild, a rogue boar they called it, and for fun we would bring our relations round and they would, in fear and trembling, go near. Well, it was quite dangerous, and the land was all shaking like this continually for quite a while till they tamed the jolly thing. But um, in the line of uh, calorific value, it's it's quite a, a detailed thing. I was doing it for 14 years. Um, well, well, a long time ago. Um, I did thousands of determinations, now all in duplicate, and the temperature movements are measured to one thousandth of a degree on a specially calibrated thermometer. And you can do six of these a day if you're very good. That's what I got up to. <laughs>
0: If you were moving all around the North Island, were mm. you home a lot, or was this...?
1: Well, this is in various um, sections, you see. In the cold section, I was more or less fixed. But in the um, thermal chemistry section, which was just for one year, uh, we were moving around a lot here. Mm. Mm. But there would be day movements mainly, not overnights.
0: Tell me about your work in um, blood alcohol then.
1: Well... Um, In this work I was again uh, asked if I would like to go to Auckland, which is a branch lab. And um, I was quite keen to go there because my wife's family was settled in Auckland. And um, so uh, we went there at their expense and um, the results of um, blood alcohol we do them all in duplicate, and then we um, just put them in the a, a little blood bottles, just put them in the fridge. Results were often queried at court. So we got used to the routine, and uh, the court was only two city blocks away, and we'd run over the, from Queen Street up to the court. The interruption in the work was only brief, and the legislation was later changed, and it became breath alcohol testing. Breath alcohol was non-invasive and so didn't require this uh, blood. So we moved into forensic alcohol quite seamlessly because there was I out of so much duty. But basically I was called to Auckland to do the blood alcohols because they were overrun with all the thousands of cases coming in at the beginning.
0: Did the work that you did in blood alcohol lead to your work in forensics?
1: Oh, yes, yes. Um, You see, the blood alcohol work sort of tapered away when it went to breath alcohol. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was naturally just used up and pushed into the other forensic work, first small cases and then bigger ones.
0: What sorts of things did you do in forensics?
1: Well, for instance, I can remember um, walking around um, behind the library looking for footprints of a chap who went... sort of chasing women. And uh, we were looking for footprints and found a couple in there and perhaps they belonged to him perhaps they didn't. See, we would accompany the police to do the technical stuff and the te- the police had already found a suspect and found where he'd been and all this sort of thing. So we were sort of serving the police a lot.
0: So were you doing fingerprints, footprints?
1: No, I wasn't in the finger. They had a special police section doing fingerprints. But footprints, yes, because it's an all manner of things. You have bits of leaves and, you know. Um, I remember one footprint case, which I haven't um, previously thought about, where it was called the Parnell Panther. Now, that was a name he gave himself. And uh, he was a, a chap who climbed a ladder and walked into a room and assaulted, and badly assaulted a woman. She was an announcer on the radio, um, but when I got to the case, there was a blood footprints on the floor. In the blood was a footprints. They didn't fit his shoes, but his shoes were of a soft rubbery material, and he was a heavy, muscular person, so he must have been distorting his shoes, such that this fitted. The thing that clicked him was that the shoe had seven treads across it in the left shoe, but the right shoe had nine. It was cut from a different piece of material. Very rare that this happens, and uh, I was able by the rarity of the thing to show that despite the, the size fluctuation, there was a real agreement, and we got a, a conviction out of it. But it took quite a bit of thinking and uh, working out.
0: Was this in pre-DNA days?
1: Oh, yes. Yeah. No DNA in those days.
0: So forensics would be much more sophisticated, perhaps, today. Very much more, yes. More tools available to, yes, the, to the scientists. Mm. What area did you enjoy the most?
1: Well... Um, let me think. I did arsons, rapes, murders, assaults, causes of death, forgeries, engine number restoration. It's a great lot, and they're all interesting in, in their way. I think the most challenging were forgeries and uh, engine number restoration. That means where they've stamped over a number or um, cut it out altogether and put a new one in. So you have to have special. Methods for those sort of things.
0: So, was the forensic area the most interesting?
1: Oh yeah, it sounds like it sounds like,
0: <laughs> a, it sounds like really fascinating work, it, doesn't it? It's a of, delight, yeah. Because there's always something to be found out, exactly. Uh, yes. Searched out,
1: hadn't always been done before. Mm.
0: Where do you think you made the most impact?
1: Well, most impact, I think, is uh, made in the day by day things. I'd rather be doing um, health testing of those vegetables and mm. carrots and things. Yeah.
0: Tell me about the culture of science, Phil, that Um, you you worked in. You're a Christian. Yeah. Did your Christian faith present any difficulties for you? Now,
1: you've got to think of the year that this was. And Dr. Seely had started the DSIO. He was a Christian. Dr. Ritchie was a brilliant chemist, and he was just before my time. Sir Ernest Marsden, I'd worked beside him on, on the lab. So this was the years that I was there, and these were all Christian people. Now, the man in charge of um, the next section, the age-dating section, was Dr. Athol Rafter, and he was a committed Catholic. Uh, Dr. Nelson was uh, also a a Christian, and Dr. Gregg was in charge of the DSIR. These all Christians, and a number of the staff were Christian, but... The atheistic tendencies were starting to show themselves in my later bosses. And although they were courteous, um, they had a different outlook. Mm. And the work ethic was quite different. How do you mean? They tended to take lots of breaks for smokes. And uh, they would drink to excess uh, at their happy hour at the end of the week.
0: Now, the creation-evolution issue is a hot topic today. Was it such a hot topic those
1: days? (laughs) No, it wasn't, but it is today. And uh, so many people believe the universe and all of it evolved by chance due to naturalistic things over billions of years. I I had to learn this in uh, geology when I did it. It's also believed that there's abundant scientific evidence supporting this idea. But when you examine the evidence for yourself, the evidence is not there. And the naturalistic processes are not capable of forming mutations into giving new species. You see, the, it, it depends on how you define species. If you go to a, an, an evolution, um, a Christian, they speak of baromen, in other words, a kind. And that's what God created a kind of animal, a kind of creature that are these non... They are fixed groups. They don't interbreed.
0: They don't interbreed, but they did have the capacity to speciate.
1: Yes, a lot. They had very wide capacity to speciate. And when this is studied, you find no conflict at all with the evidence.
0: So you can have a dog kind and a cat kind and a horse kind and so forth. That's right. They can speciate within mm-hmm. within that kind, but they can't go beyond those limits. So we don't see cats turning into horses. That's and so exactly
1: forth. true. You've got the treat, treatment right there.
0: So what do you think are the strongest evidences for creation?
1: Well I'll tell you now about the C fourteen measurements that I saw. Mm-hmm. That's very strong evidence. The little counter, which I said was heavily screened for all outside influences, and was just measuring the carbon that was being tested. The, um, the count-in was never zero. It was going click, 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 click. And those clicks, even though this was meant to be coal, said to be, well, it is at least 5,000 years old, 10,000 years is the um, about the cut-off for, coal, for carbon dating... And um, that meant that this carbon sample was really alive. Mm-hmm. And they ca- counted it as dead by taking off the, the standard click clicks that were happening, you see.
0: So, this is telling us then that coal is not necessarily
1: as hundreds say. of thousands
0: or millions of That's years right. old.
1: Now, I did a little experiment of my own. I mean, Bob Gentry, uh, John, somebody Gentry does this, this thing. But um, in my own way, I had done this and found the same thing, that a piece of wood with in uh, a little bit of dampness, and I believe a clay sample put in with it, it makes it go even faster. But just for a week, uh, see, in the coal labs where I was working for so long, I had... Um, a gas muffle furnaces that were continually running, and I used one of these to test my coal sample. It was only set at 200 degrees, and uh, it, you know...
0: So you were basically able to mimic the process of yeah. coal formation... Yeah, I did. ..in the laboratory. That's right. I think that's what was done by Robert Gentry, wasn't
1: Gentry, it? Gentry, that's his name, yeah...
0: So what do do you think are the strongest barriers for you as a scientist to believe in evolution?
1: Um, Mary Schweitzer, who has discovered red stuff that looked like corpuscles and blood inside the marrow of some of these dinosaurs. And she doesn't know what to do with it.
0: That clearly indicates that these animals are not... Yes. Millions of years old, 65 million years old, for example. Yep. When they were supposed to have died out.
1: You know, the, the, the DNA is so complex that it has repair mechanisms walking up and down the, the length of it. Yes. While it is actually working. And the repair mechanisms are not just one. There's a whole battery of them. In fact, it can vary with the DNA. And this is all so complex; it's even hard to discover.
0: What you're and saying then is that this couldn't happen incidentally, m- accidentally, or by is, chance.
1: Life is far too complex. Yes. So
0: the complexity indicates that there is design. Yes. That's uh, very interesting about the corpuscles and the red blood cells in the. You di- haven't
1: heard of Mary Schweitzer?
0: I have. Yes, yes I've heard I of the yeah. dinosaur bones. Yes. With your understanding of forensics, how long do you think that um, that that substance, that material, the blood, and whatever, mm. would have survived? Well, I'm before not, it, before it um, was no longer identifiable.
1: Mm. Well, what do you think? A thousand years, a couple of thousand years. You know,
0: it's. Uh, I would have thought it would have been a relatively short period of relatively time. Relatively
1: short period of time. Certainly not a million. Yeah, Thousands of years at the very most.
0: So if Schweitzer's material is actually blood and corpuscles and we have to revise downward mm. tremendously the actual age of the dinosaurs. We do, yes. Are there any unresolved scientific issues for creationists that you know of?
1: Well, there are. There are quite a lot. Why is there a sequence of creatures in the fossils going from complex to very simple as you go down. Why are they there generally? And where is the flood boundary? It should leap out at us. Mm. And yet scientists are looking at it with a very mixed reception. I know that
0: that issue of the flood boundary is a very current issue among creationists. Mm. Yes. I think the issue around um, the geological record and the the strata... Mm. Uh, can probably be explained by some sort of water sorting.
1: Yes, I think so.
0: I mean, there are alternative explanations. Not, there's not just sim- one simple explanation for these things. That's right. There, there are the, there are alternative explanations.
1: Yes. But, um,
0: and there's still pre- a lot of work to be pre- done. Prehistory,
1: as as always, um, well, for a while we've looked at the Nathandians and thought, uh, you know, this is a a pre man. But as they have gone on in their research, they find out that these people worshipped, that they buried their folk. They were not crude men. And in fact, they have found that they interbreed with modern people. So we are the same species. Mm. And the Nathaniels were probably just a small group that interbred after the flood and gradually became overrun by other races.
0: We'll go to a break now. When we come back, I'll be talking with Philip about his early life and influences.
1: If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABM Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 2 Four nine seven three three four five six. Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au That is radio at the number 3 ABN Australia all one word .org.au. Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc PO Box 752 Morissette New South Wales 2264 Australia Thank you for your prayers and financial support.
0: I've been talking with Philip Groom about his life in science before the break. I want to talk with Philip now about uh, his early life and his influences. Phil, where were you born and where did you grow up?
1: I was born in Napier in New Zealand, just one year after the tremendous destruction of Napier by the earthquake in 1931. And uh, that was um, a 10-foot uplift in the... Region of West Shore, which was the opposite side of the hill to us,
0: must have been very destructive.
1: It was the and the recently constructed um, cathedral, Anglican cathedral, was completely demolished. It must have broken their heart. But uh, I, I grew up. Um, in Napier, but I moved at 18 to Wellington to attend university. So um, when I was in Wellington, I met my wife.
0: In the um, aftermath of that earthquake, uh, and that's the time that you're growing up in Napier, yes. what do you remember about that, the reconstruction? I know that Napier has...
1: Uh, it's got a name of uh, Art Deco, Art Deco. Because, it, because it was all reconstructed at the same time and in the same time. Period designers all around the city.
0: It's a bit like an Art Deco museum. (laughs) So if you're interested in Art Deco, you go to to Napier. I guess. Tell me about your family.
1: Well, we're a working-class family, and I had two brothers and two sisters, and I was in the middle, roughly. Um, So I was neither—I wasn't very—in fact, I was a pernickety child. A pernickety uh, child. You but know what a pernickety child is? Oh, yeah. They're very hard to bring up. Mum <laughs> <laughs> was forever trying to get me to eat ordinary food. And it was wartime, wartime. And um, she had coupons to, to balance and all sorts of things. I was very small for my age and of slight build. I'm still quite a small chap. So I had a bad start, but I was Mum's favourite. I suppose she spent so much time on me. And um, Dad was so hard-working, and you come home and eat and fall asleep, he was working on the wharf, and that was considered essential work
0: for Mm. those
1: uh, war years. What was
0: life like in the family?
1: Well, it was um, fairly hard at, at the beginning because of the war. And um, mum was, uh, she had to make everything out of, cl- out of sewing and so forth. She had an old Singer sewing machine which I later motorised for her and this sort of thing. It wasn't easy going.
0: What about the family? Was it a happy family?
1: Well, um, yes, it was a happy family. It was a divided family in a way because dad never came to church and mum was always taking us along to church regularly uh, and walking all the way.
0: Did you feel loved and accepted in the family?
1: Very much. Uh, I especially was um, a, a sort of a favoured one and um, I suppose mum was trying to build me up against. instead. Yeah. So um, there
0: was this division over, um, over religion.
1: Yes. Um,
0: what impact did that have?
1: Well, Mum was an active Adventist, and she taught us to be the same, but she was never accompanied by Dad. and um,
0: But he was very tolerant.
1: Yes, he was. But if Dad was coming home for lunch, or finishing at lunchtime, she would have to be there to have him lunch, and that meant she left church early, and so she didn't always see the end of church. But Dad sometimes took his lunch with him, of course.
0: Okay. Phil, how did you get on with your siblings?
1: I very much appreciated my older brother. Uh, First, he helped me in getting engineering. uh, His his engineering degree, I helped him a lot with study, but he helped me in later times by giving me some money when I needed it most, Um, and I paid him back. But I'd like to record that Dear old Trev, he's dead now of diabetes, which I could have saved him from if he had wished. but uh, I love him very much mm. and he was very wonderful to me.
0: Tell me about your father and his work.
1: Well, Dad was a um, a wolf worker, and he was very strong in his character. He never drank. And uh, when he gave up smoking, he did it for good, and he was a very strong personality. I can see that Mum could trust him and um when he was at his deathbed, I believe he may have may have wanted to be with Mum, or had daughter already died, and I pray that he would be.
0: Hmm. Okay. What about your other siblings?
1: I'm still very close to um, my sister, who's uh, one remaining. Uh, she's uh, takes after dad, and she goes out white baiting, and loves to have uh, white bait. Uh, when I call on her, she gives me a little bundle of white bait wrapped up in paper that she's been keeping, you know, to last through the year.
0: <laughs> what is white bait? Is it like a
1: Oh, it's They are very small fish. Um, they do have scales, but uh, they're so tiny they're they're just like just hatched.
0: And they're used for bait.
1: No, 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 no. They are um, a delicacy. Uh, eating you, you cook them just as they are, and okay. in, in batter. It's a very. You want to go to Napier and have it at a restaurant. <laughs> Um, my my younger brother, Jim, um, has his own business and he's made it a very good business. He's a, into a lathe work of precision uh, to make gas uh, bottle joints in stainless steel that fit precisely and he sells them all over the world. Um, but he can't, his problem was to sell the business when he wanted to sell it so that he could be with his wife. I don't know if he's really succeeded in that.
0: What brought you to Australia?
1: Oh, yes. Well, this is a wonderful land. The, um, we should have been here years ago from, uh, but when we arrived here, we saw that we could have helped our son Peter so much more if we'd been here. Uh, he must have had great problems with his skin problem and um, the fact that even now he has... Um, yet he's very skilled at everything he does, but he's looking after the the outdoor work of the, the hospital down at Sydney Sand. And uh, he was in the kitchen and doing a marvellous job there, but the fact that he had an itch all the time in his skin meant that he wasn't uh, a possible person for the public. And uh, we could have helped in some way I suppose.
0: So was the climate here better for him?
1: Yes. he's, He's altogether relieved now and the doctors have found just the right medication for him. So we're very grateful to all the Australian system that's looked after him.
0: Are all your children living in
1: Australia? No, Dave, uh, David's in England. He married an English girl after exploring the place over there. What and does David do? He's a, um, an engineer and um, takes after his dad. And uh, he works with uh, Precision Continental Cars.
0: Okay. Yeah. What does your daughter do?
1: Um, she is a um, in in uh, Queensland. She is a, a, a office leader in her business. And Rabina, you've heard of Rabina, have you? Well, it was more or less made by her company, who her, her company, I mean, you yeah, her boss's company. And she is uh, the chief girl to the boss.
0: Okay. And Peter, your younger son, lives in Sydney. Yes. What did you like to do as a child?
1: Oh, fascinating. You've got a wide range of hobbies. Um, now, I wasn't into sports. I was too small and couldn't even catch a ball properly.
0: <laughs> that was probably a good thing for your later career.
1: <laughs> probably.
0: Developing those interests.
1: I had a microscope, which I bought for three pounds, um, secondhand. It was something that fascinated me, and I got quite expert at at mounting the little insects and creatures and the flowers. And uh, just to look at a a printed colour picture under the microscope showed the little coloured dots that actually made up the picture, you know. And uh, I, I was fascinated. I knew a lot of things about that. I also inherited a Meccano beginning set.
0: I think most of us had a Meccano those days.
1: Well, I had a big one. I built it up until I had a really big one, about a number nine. And um, I suppose Mum helped me buy things when I think about it. Um, and I had a lawn mowing job to get a little bit of cash. Mum's friend Auntie Phyllis loved us kids and gave us expensive toys, which sometimes lasted for years. Uh, I remember all my siblings joined in car races up and down the passage. We had a passage from one end of the house to the other and Car races up there were a wonderful idea. Off an IR on end. Now, at Mum's insistence, I borrowed and later bought a a violin. And um, Mr. Bell used to give me free lessons. He was a a dance band violinist and... uh, anything to get him going again on his old fingers. He loved me to come along and he would teach me violin from a tutor. Did Uh, you
0: master uh, the instrument?
1: Sort of, but I never took to it in a high level. I had too much other things on my mind. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Do you still play today?
1: Uh, I sadly don't. I've got quite a good violin now and my wife bought for me, but I don't, yeah, never mind. I try and do it for her. Um, What
0: was your experience at school?
1: This is where I really shone because I looked forward. I had an imaginary school teacher as a kid. I called her Miss Batty. I went outside and I would talk to Miss Batty and she'd talk back to me. (laughs) And uh, I was doing schoolwork before my time, you know. (laughs) Um, As my baby sister was already two years old and I was looking ahead, No, they were looking ahead. My dad bought me a good second-hand bike, but it was a girl's one. A girl's bike. (laughs) Go to school. My brother already had a boy's bike. Uh, Did
0: you get any comments?
1: I suppose so. I was a bit embarrassed at any rate. But I did enjoy school very much. Uh, During high school, I um, purchased a homemade chemistry set and uh, built it up till it was really a magnificent chemistry set. Had it mounted on my wall like a library, and um, outside the window I kept the stinky stuff. Do you know about that? H2S generators? Oh, well. Um, so uh, now in my reading of my big brother's engineering notes, I found that he had a rare metal beryllium in some of his bearings. Beryllium bearings were the thing those days. And um, I extracted beryllium and bringing home for me some used bearings, and I extracted that, and then the notes on that were were a valuable help to me when I went to my interview as to whether I was worthy of a science um, bursary.
0: I can understand why you studied chemistry.
1: Yeah, well, it was it was the main thing available. I mean. Electronics was not a thing available those days.
0: Mm. Mm. Who were the biggest influences in your life as you were growing up?
1: Well, my faithful mum and her and her religion—they were what kept me going. Um, my chemistry teachers, all of them, they were all enthusiastic and shared their love of chemistry.
0: Tell me about your spiritual journey and your conversion.
1: Well, it was really remarkable. I hadn't been baptized, much to Mum's um, sorrow, I suppose. When I left, she never mentioned it, but the other kids were baptized, and I slipped out. I went to university uh into uh, an Anglican home when I went there, and she'd been. I had to decide then whether to keep the Sabbath, and I did make my own decisions. Um, the Anglican lady helped me to. She said, Oh, it's Saturday tomorrow, isn't it? You're going to church on Saturday. <laughs> and uh, there was only one day I missed. I went to the library instead, and um, I felt miserable, so I didn't do that again. <laughs> yes, I kept Sabbath, and I was baptised with a group of boys at tea at Wellington Church, and uh, Mum was no doubt delighted. <laughs>
0: How old were you at that stage?
1: Uh, I'd have been 18, okay. perhaps going on 19. Mm.
0: So was that the time of your conversion? Do you feel like that's when you were converted to Christianity or was this just a natural con- outgrowth, consequence? Natural
1: outgrowth. You have to make a decision sometime, don't you? Yes. And it was a bit late for me, but it was a good decision.
0: And it was at a time when you were tested about what you were yes, going to do, wasn't that's it? that's right. You've worked with people extensively, uh, young people particularly. Tell me about that.
1: Well, we were introduced to Pathfinders a little bit after Australia discovered them.
0: Now, Pathfinders are
1: uh, the um, youth work, a uh, combined boy and girl scout club,
0: within uh, the Seventh churches. Church. Yes.
1: Mm. Um, Bronte Sinclair and uh, Alan and uh, Lindsay in 1958. Well, uh, our friend. One of the boys baptised for me, Trevor Hasse, knew we were an unused church school, and we were running a club within a week or two of hearing about it. And um, the Masterton and Palmerston North churches started at the same time, and we all joined in a field day at Masterton about November of that very year, 1958. Pretty amazing. We got going. No, no uniforms. We just thought it was a good idea so lawson whisker was the director of our combined wellington lower Hutt club and trevor was a transport officer bringing about <laughs> 11 children in his little Vauxhall. <laughs> squeezed in all over the place um and we met fortnightly and uh, singing and marching and doing hobbies well they soon printed manuals from the conference office And uh, we got ourselves organised with uniforms and honour badges to wear on a sash. Uh, We went to hikes uh, uh, all around the place. But one that I remember was... um, I
0: imagine there would have been some beautiful hikes in New Zealand.
1: Oh, there are. There are. We we don't really appreciate how beautiful it is until you get over into Australia and see the rotten (laughs) scenery that's here. Uh, Sharon Paris had had a birthday, and we didn't recognise it until I until I decided to bring out the cake. I humped this heavy birthday cake <laughs> in a in a bag on this whole hike, and then I produced it triumphantly <laughs> at lunchtime <laughs> to their joy, you know. <laughs> Uh, well,
0: so you were closely involved with Pathfinders for many well, years.
1: We, yeah, we, we were met for many years. There was Lower Hutt and there was Wellington, and uh, they separated quite early in the piece. And um, we um, we lived in Lower Hutt and we lived in Wellington. We sort of changed over from one to the other, and I got into leadership in both places. Um, Ava was my girlfriend... Um, ran about this stage and she was working on her Master Guide badge down in Longburn doing a course and um, was invested in Graduation Weekend. Now in 1961 I was invested as a Master Guide, a step ahead, and uh, during the Youth Congress that was held there then, Haskell Park. When we returned in Wellington, uh, we continued JMVs on Sabbath afternoon and Pathfinders on Sunday. And the new Lower Hutt Church building started being, and we were helping to build that. The day the church was opened by Wally Nash, the Prime Minister, we announced our engagement and uh, planned to marry in 1962, in April 1962. The the Lower Hutt Pathfinders dominated our lives completely. Um, In 1963, when we turned... We returned from a year in Taupo doing the thermal work. Uh, I took over the Pathfinder Club at Lower Hutt and we settled in a nearby suburb of um, Lower Hutt.
0: You must have found Pathfinders and working with young people very satisfying to continue Uh, this involvement. It
1: came naturally, yeah. I just love the kids. And, um, yeah, we made a good relationship with each other. Our, our future Pathfinders, that's our own kids, uh, started to come along. Our daughter Carolyn, 63, David, 65, and Peter, in 68. And the Pathfinders were always at the forefront of all activity. And during the first, the birth of our children, I was never there. I was at Pathfinders.
0: Hmm.
1: <laughs> Each one of them. <laughs> uh,
0: that sounds like you had a very active en- engagement with them.
1: Yeah. Uh, We did um, pottery, I remember, uh, with one of the rare honours. And uh, I went to Patoni Tech and learned pottery. And uh, I'd come back and next week I'd be teaching kids what I'd learned. (laughs) It was fun. I was able to burn them, uh, to cook them, you know, in the uh, furnaces at uh, DSIR. So it was a really good system all round. Uh, Pathfinder leadership continued until we left... Lower Hutt for Auckland in 1969. It was enjoyable passing on to all the children. those honour, work, knowledge, and sometimes people got into a work because of it. They had that knowledge and showed an interest. Um, We settled our own family and moved over into Sandringham, went to Brentwood Church, found them doing JMVs why not Pathfinders? <laughs> so we started the Pathfinder Club in the same year that we got there.
0: That, uh, uh, that service to young people I don't think is, um, is ever wasted. I think
1: I young people
0: remember yeah. the people who have invested time and energy and enthusiasm in them. And
1: Even now going around I meet uh, uh, young people, especially islanders, and they say, I've seen your face before. Were you in New Zealand? Yes. <laughs> yes, I was district director <laughs> at that time, you know. Yeah,
0: that, mu- that must be satisfying.
1: <laughs> yes, I was district director with eight clubs under my care. I did that for four years and I decided to leave. And um, we passed the club over to other people. Mm. Altogether, I spent over 50 years in some sort of leadership in the clubs. Okay. Pathfinders.
0: Phil, what have you learned from your life that you'd like to share with the listeners? Something that you think everyone needs to know.
1: Well, I think in these days of electronic games that we need to actively promote a balanced lifestyle for our youth. Pathfinders does that. And we've got to recognise that it's a beguiling thing, these electronic things. And uh, so it wouldn't do to make an outright ban. You'd cut off all those bright people that are doing their games. So it would take a a hard balance to work both ways. Mm. But you need the balance of an outdoor life and uh, understanding the goodness of God's creation as well as electronic things.
0: And you've found work really enjoyable too, haven't you?
1: Very much. I've thoroughly enjoyed my work Um, useful because they're making decisions for their future and leaders must represent the Lord and give them a good picture of God.
0: Mm -hmm. Phil, do you have a favorite passage of Scripture that you would like to share with us? I'd like
1: to share Ecclesiastes 3.12. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime.
0: So is that what you... have Discovered yourself?
1: Yeah, I just found it. I thought that was a good text for me.
0: (laughs) It is a good text, you know, considering what we've been talking about, isn't it?
1: Mm. I pray that we can all encourage each other in the Lord.
0: Yes. Phil, would you like to um, close our uh, conversation with a prayer for our listeners?
1: Yes, do that. Dear Lord, our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to witness positively for you at the wonders of creation, small and great, near and far, and everywhere we see, despite sin, that there is beauty in it all. Thank you, God, for the opportunity of sharing with others. Amen.
0: Amen. Phil, it's been really interesting talking with you today. Um, it's nice to be able to reflect on, uh, on past times and things that have taken mm-hmm. place in the past. And to see the changes that have occurred in our in our world today,
1: mm, true.
0: So, thank you for coming in and sharing your story with us today. Appreciate that very much, and God bless you. Thank you. Remember to tune in again next time as I talk with another fascinating guest on Life Learnings. Bye for now. God bless you and keep you.
2: Are there burdens in your heart? Is your past a memory that binds you? Is there something that you've carried? Yeah.
0: That was Manuel Escorcio, and there is a saviour.